Hope everybody is doing well uh, this morning. I'm very excited to be able to preach this message. Uh, Jason gave me a, a tough text to take, a tough text to, to handle, uh, but it's been really good for me. I've been thinking about this for about four weeks now, um, but I just want to let you guys know up front uh, that, that I'm very honored and privileged to be able to open the Word of God with all of you, and it's something I don't take lightly um, by any means of, of being able to be up here and preach and so I just want to let you guys know that if, if you don't know who I am, my name is Brian Lamb and I'm one of the next generation ministers here. I get to oversee the, the pre-K and kindergarten and nursery and then also 7th through 12th grade, the students, and then also uh, the young adult ministry. I get to co-lead that with uh, my wife and, and then also Cam. And so, uh, you know, being a student minister, there's, there's a certain question that I've found that I get asked probably more than, than any other question. And, it, and it's a hard question question to, to be asked, and it's a hard question, honestly, to give an answer, and I think it's something that really is the question of our culture. Uh, it's a topic that's <clears throat> used to bring into question the uh, character of God, and therefore to bring into question the existence of God. You know, I, I think it's a good, it's a great question to ask. It really is. Um, it's something that's really good for you to work through in your life and in your walk with the Lord. Um, I think it's something that all of us have asked or we're going to ask or maybe we are continually asking this question. C.S. Lewis says that it was, that it was this question that led him to atheism. And then interestingly enough, it was this question that led him to a belief in God. And so I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. The question is, how can there be an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, holy, and loving God when there is evil and suffering in the world? Maybe a more simpler way to put it is, how can a good God allow suffering? And what this question is doing is it's challenging the character of God and therefore challenging the existence of God and saying, uh, it's doing that based off of the events of suffering and evil that we see day in and day out. And, and this question will really haunt all of us if we answer it and we look through life in the view of ourselves. So if we look at life through the lens of self, then our happiness is the end goal of everything, isn't it? And so therefore, when we go through suffering, it's a failure on God's part to produce our happiness as we define happiness. So when something goes wrong or something doesn't go the way that we had planned, naturally we accuse God and we call into question his existence. Because if he does exist, then the only thing he exists for is to make me happy. Now, if we view this question in light um, with the lens of God, then we see that God actually uses suffering in our lives as a means to freedom and to redemption and to eternal joy with him and his, ultimately his glory. We see that God uses suffering uh, in when he sent his son who suffered more than anyone. Um, that he suffered so that he would rescue us. We see that in Jesus, God actually knows our pain and has experienced our suffering. We see that God uses suffering as a tool in his hands to mold us and shape us and teach us. 
And so there might be a reason for God to allow suffering to continue in his perfect wisdom that outweighs the reason to take suffering away. And so while this may not answer each individual question of each experience of pain that we go through, it does give us a very, very deep resource to go to so that when we do go through suffering, we can have hope in the midst of it. Because we know that God, and this is something we get confused a lot, but we know then that God is not after our temporal happiness. But he's much bigger than that. He's after our eternal joy, namely in him. And so, you know, I could stand up here and give you plenty of logical reasons why suffering doesn't actually disprove God. There's plenty of them out there. There's plenty of theories out there um, <clears throat> that really suffering produces, suffering magnifies the existence of God rather than disproving God. But here's the deal, and, and this is for everybody. Logic doesn't change our hearts, and logic doesn't make it easier to go through. Only Jesus can do that for us. Only he can do that. And so I think it'd be more beneficial for me to preach what Jason asked me to preach. And so we're going to go into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, that's where we'll be today as Paul, uh, who is the author of this, gives us some insight, some key answers to this question of suffering much better than I ever could. Um, and so we'll, we'll go there. But one thing, and I'm going to tell you guys this at the end, and I'll, I'll stand on this very, very firmly the only way that suffering is going to make sense to us fully and the only way that you can actually truly be healed in the midst of evil and suffering in the world is through a saving belief in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And so if you're a believer here today, I've, I've been praying, like I've had this text for four to five weeks. I've been praying that long that this would be an encouragement to you that you would be able to see the truths that are presented here from Paul, that you would be able to hold on to those in times that are hard. And if you're not a believer in Jesus today, I've been praying for four to five weeks that you would trust in Jesus as your Savior today and that you would see that there is eternal, everlasting joy that comes from knowing him that far surpasses any sort of suffering that you've gone through in this present time. And it even far surpasses the happiness maybe that you had. And so let's go into this, just a little bit of background on 2 Corinthians. The, this is really one of the most personal works of Paul, one of the most personal letters. You get to see Paul in a really unique way. And the reason for this is that there's a central theme, a thread that's going through 2 Corinthians. And he addressed, well, hello, he addresses the relationship between affliction or suffering in his, in his ministry and the power of the Spirit and the grace of God in his ministry. Those are the two things because, see, Paul's opponents were undermining his work and they're calling into question, they're using the claims of Jesus to call into question if he was really a true apostle. They're trying to disprove if he was really a true apostle. And so Paul's response to this, to these accusations that he gets, is the letter of 2 Corinthians where he's going to say that my suffering does not disprove anything. My suffering actually highlights my dependence and my need for Christ rather than me relying on myself. It actually glorifies God more than anything. And so it's very interesting to me that he actually, in this letter, he praises God for the very suffering that his opponents were trying to use against him to disprove him. And he asks and he 
It says, I'm praying that these experiences of suffering would be used to show you the glorious work of God in the midst of our suffering. So affliction, just so we're clear, is anything that causes pain, distress, hardship. Um, And we'll get a little bit more into that. You're going to see a very vivid description of what he's talking about when he says affliction. And so really there's two things that I want to show you. We're going to go three to ten. There's two things I want to show you in this. Um, And this is why we go through affliction and how we go through affliction. So I want to answer the question why we go through affliction and suffering and then how we endure it as Bible-believing Christians from the light moments all the way to the unbearable moments. And so verse 3, it says, Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I think he used comfort about ten times there. Um, Paul's very meticulous like that. He wants to make sure we understand what he's saying. Um, and so the, the first thing that we can pull out of this is the reason as to why we go through suffering. And he gives two reasons of why we go through suffering here. And, and there's something so beautiful about affliction. That's, that's hard to hear even when we're not going through it. But it's really hard to hear when we're going through it that there's something beautiful coming out of this. But that's the point Paul's trying to make here. He's trying to show us that in our suffering, in our weakness, in our affliction, God's glory is manifested and revealed to us. And not only that, but God's glory is manifested and revealed to others through us. And so we're going to go verse by verse to show us this a little bit deeper. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. As Paul begins this by saying, blessed be the God and Father of Jesus. He is the God, uh, the Father of mercies, and he's the God of all comfort, that all true comfort comes from knowing God. And then he connects Christ in this, showing that the way that we receive the goodness of God, the way that we receive the mercy and the comfort that comes from God is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He said comfort at least six times in like two sentences. He wants to make sure we know that God comforts us. 
right? Uh, in this, we, we see that God, God actually has purpose, divine purposes in our affliction, in our sufferings. He is sovereign and in control over the purposes of our troubles. And he's saying here, it's so that when we suffer, we would be able to experience the direct and personal comfort that comes from knowing God. Because, in verse 3, remember it says, because he's the father of all mercies. He's the God of all comfort. But then we also see more, there's more purpose behind this. It says that, but there is another purpose, that we would be able to minister to and comfort those who are going through suffering as well with the same comfort that we know. And so, like, I've seen this play out a lot in people's lives where God will allow them to go through a season of suffering, go through something that's not fun to go through, just so that he could use that and use them in this person's life to help them go through something. And that both of them would know him more deeply and be able to feel the mercy of God and see the glory of God. And so what this is saying is that our sufferings are not pointless. Our sufferings, our affliction is not meaningless. And you're going to hear that a lot as we continue. Verse 5 it says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so it's very important for us to understand this is not saying that we add something to the sufferings of Christ. It's not saying that Christ's sufferings were insufficient for us. But it's actually saying that God has called us to suffer for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the church. And that through that, we will follow in Christ's footsteps. And as we are faithful in enduring suffering and affliction for the sake of God's glory and the sake of God's people, that we will experience the comfort that comes through Christ. It doesn't come anywhere else. It comes through Christ. We receive the comfort of God. We're met with it. Verse 6, it says, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort too. Paul's a bit of a repeater. He likes to repeat himself many times, right? Um, he says, he's just explained it, but he's going to say, hey, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort. Either way, we want you guys to be overwhelmed with the mercy and grace of God that you would be unshaken when trials come. And then Paul begins to tell a story. He shows an example of how this has played out in his life. And this is very interesting of how it played out in his life. And we all need to remember this as we're reading these scriptures from Paul, that this is not some Western-cultured, comfortable American pastor that's talking to us. Paul knew suffering very deeply. And we're going to see a very vivid description of that here, and we're going to see a bigger one even uh, later in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. But right here in verse 8 it says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul says he wants them to be aware 
He wants them to know that as Christians, we go through suffering. We go through affliction. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that has happened, that's going to happen. And look at the description, though, that he says. He's talking about a time in Asia. Look at the description. He says that they were utterly burdened beyond strength. They despaired of life itself. And it felt like a sentence of death was upon them. Basically, what I get in my mind is it felt like they were walking down death row about to be put to death. But. I love this. But. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was to make us rely on the comfort of God. Even though it felt like a death sentence upon my shoulders, it was God allowed me to go through it. Why? For the specific reason that I would be able to rely on him and know him more deeply. That I'd be able to see his glory more clearly. And that I'd be able to go and then comfort others, that I wouldn't rely on myself and my own strength, because myself and my own strength, aren't gonna, they're not going to cut it, but I would rely on the creator of the universe's power. And so in these times of suffering, we need to remember why it's happening to us. It's happening so that we would re- not rely on ourselves, but that we would re- rely on the Lord, and that we would share this comfort that comes from him with others, that others would be affected by this as well. I've seen this play out in my life uh, very vividly. Uh, Growing up, I had absolutely amazing parents and an awesome childhood, and even the scary teenage years weren't that bad. Um, And so it it was just, it was great. Um, I was, I grew up in the Methodist church until I was about 12 or 13. I I ended up stopped going, I stopped going to church. Um, I didn't, there's just, really, when it all comes down to it, I was hurt by the church, and there's some things I saw that I thought were stupid and dumb. and so I didn't go, and so, you know, from 13 to 17, I was not in a, or 13 really to 18, I was not in a youth program. I'm a youth minister now, kind of weird. Uh, I, I wasn't a part of anything like that, and, and nobody was going to make me go. There's no way. Um, and so, anyways, growing up, awesome childhood, great time. I really never experienced anything that was bad at all, um, at all. And like I said, I was 17, though, not in church at all, not a part of anything really. And when I was 17, my, my grandfather, whom I loved dearly and absolutely thought the world of, passed away. This was in 2005. And it was really the first time that suffering had ever hit me. Um, you know, he, he, I just had a really good relationship with him. He wasn't one of those distant grandfathers. Uh, him and my grandmother, who's, who's here today, uh, would, would drive down to see every Little League game, every football game, every basketball game, every band concert, everything that my sister went through. they come see it all from Oklahoma. they drive from Oklahoma, sometimes three, four hours away. He was very much in my life. Um, he was a pastor uh, for I, I don't even know how long, a, a long time. Um, and so he was diagnosed with cancer, and so I, I'll just show you even, even more how much I really love this man. Uh, <clears throat> his last week... He was basically on his deathbed. He, you, you couldn't even recognize him because he had lost so much weight from the cancer. He could barely talk, barely move, anything. And I remember uh, TCU, he, he graduated from TCU, so my dad, so my mom, big TCU family, and he took us to all the bowl games, and he'd take us to the football games and season tickets and the whole deal. And so he's a big TCU fan, right? And so that week, 
uh, in 2005, TCU had their first big, big win uh, in a long time as they beat Oklahoma University. And he hated Oklahoma University. He did not like Barry Switzer, even though he lived in Oklahoma, right? And so I remember taking that newspaper into the uh, room where he was, and I just remember seeing him smile. He could barely lift up his hands, he'd smile. And so I took that newspaper, put it up in my room with tape, didn't frame it because I'm a teenage boy, put some tape on it, and it sat there for a long time. And um, my first Christmas with Allie as a married couple, she went and got that newspaper, she framed it, and then gave it to me as a gift for Christmas. And this is like seven to eight years after. Like, I've dealt with his death and everything. And I remember for a good ten minutes, I lost it just crying. He meant the world to me. And it was one of the hardest things to ever go through for me. And then, not to mention, just a little bit after that, in the summer following, my parents, who were together for 18 years, my entire life, got a divorce. My world and everything that I had built upon was broken and shattered. And I understand there's people who have gone through worse things, but for me, that, that did it. And I, it's crazy, because I remember that same summer, my sister, who had been inviting me to Solid Rock for probably two to three years, I finally decided to go, and I remember in that summer that God used that to open my mind and open my heart to see the absolute beauty of Jesus like I'd never seen it before. You know, I, I never followed Jesus back when I was younger. Me coming and sitting in a seat and going home is not following Jesus, at least to me. That's not what I see from the scriptures. And so I began to follow Jesus. I began to pursue Jesus. God put some amazing men in my life from this church that discipled me and that worked with me, amazing friends in my life to walk this journey through with. And so God used the, the deaths and the divorce as a way to call me to himself and show me the beauty of Jesus. And then I remember a year and a half after that, my, my grandmother on my mom's side passed away suddenly. Same relationship, amazing relationship with her. But I remember going into that was so much different. I had just a different outlook on the situation. I had a different way to deal with despair and grief now. And so the, the, the reason I continue to say it was none of what I had gone through was pointless was even as hard as they were, was because two months into my dating relationship with Allie, uh, my wife now, her sister's husband, her brother-in-law passed away. Suddenly, early age, two months into the marriage. It wrecked everything. Wrecked their family. Allie, who's grounded in her faith, wrecked her. Like, it, it startles you. It messes you up. And I remember that I was actually able to come alongside Allie. And I was able to share the comfort that I had received from God during the times of death that I had to go through. And there was nothing me meaningless or pointless about anything that I had gone through. Because I was able to share that with my now wife. And walk through her and show her how the mercy and the grace and the comfort of God can get you through anything that you go through. Not to mention how many people I've been able to talk with and walk beside through their suffering in the ministries of, with students and young adults and parents. And so, you know, when I think about this, 
and, and I, I really start to contemplate on it, I, I know that God is in control of our suffering. God is active, and nothing is pointless or meaningless in our suffering. And this is why, if God were not in control, that would mean that the evil in this world ultimately wins. And people who pass away, and the things we go through, all of them are meaningless and without a purpose. And I can't think of a more depressing scenario than that one. Everything that you go through has purpose behind it. We're going to see that even more. And so we understand that being afflicted is so that we could see the clear picture of God more and the glory of God more. We know that in that we find comfort and then we share that comfort with others. But my question for Paul, how do we endure that though? Because I understand that and I need mercy, I need grace, and I need the glory of God. But how do I go about that? What do I hold on to in that? And Paul's going to answer that for us in verse 10. Everybody look at verse 10. It says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He says, The way that we do this is we remember the power of God that delivered us in the first place, and then we trust in the grace of God, and we set our eyes, we fix our minds on the hope of God. That's how we get through this. In 2 Corinthians 4, that's, everybody flip over 2 Corinthians 4, we're going to talk through this a little bit more deeply. We've got four points in there. Um, you know, something I love about Paul is that he, he really fully answers questions. Like he'll, in Romans, he'll pose a question and he'll answer it. I love that. He'll just leave you guessing. And so he answers questions. He's very meticulous about it. And, and so I love it that, that he's not like most United States American parents. Like think about the parents when your kid does something wrong. Most parents will know this. When your kid does something wrong, think about the irony in some of your responses. You know, when they ask why, right? Like think about this one. Why am I getting in trouble? Because I said so. Does that answer anything? I've got to do this to y'all because, you know, I'm a student minister, so I've got to show you this. But, you know, another one might be, what part of no don't you understand? I think they don't understand the no part. I'm just guessing. Or you better quit that crying or I'm going to give you something to cry about. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? Or here's my all-time favorite. I know I'm going to use it. I have to use it. Do you want a spanking? <laughs> and we say that as if the kid's going to miraculously look at us and say, "Why, well, yes, Father, I want a spanking, because it shows me that I need to take responsibility for my actions, and there's consequences for them. <laughs> Never heard a teenager do that before. And if you're hoping for that, you're going to be waiting a long time. Thank goodness Paul isn't that way. Verse 7 of chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So... We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. As we, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love, 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 love that verse, those verses. And I, I want to look at verse 16 before we break down the rest of this. Because there's a key phrase that Paul uses here that connects it to the chap, chapter 1. He says, we do not lose heart. Or we have set our hope on him, as it says in chapter 1, verse 10. And I don't think that there's anyone in here today that came in here wanting to lose heart. Like, nobody woke up this morning and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to church. I'm going to sing some songs, and I really want to hear a sermon that makes me get discouraged. That's what I want. I want to be discouraged today. Nobody honestly came in here with that intention. We don't want to be discouraged in life. We don't want our hearts knocked out of us, and neither did Paul. That's why he's writing about affliction. He's going to say, this is how you don't lose heart. These things I'm telling you are how you will not lose heart, but you will have hope, but you will, and you will be renewed, and you will grow, and you will know that God is there. And so let's look at these in just a second, because there's a huge, huge temptation, and most of us know this, to actually lose heart. When life's challenges and opposition and difficulties come at us, there's a tendency to just want to quit. And sadly, we fail to realize in those times that suffering is normative. Paul is trying to communicate that to the Corinthians. He's saying, hey, look, things get dark. This life, it's hard. And there's going to be times where you go through things that make you want to quit. But those of us who have Jesus... We do not lose heart. There's an important word of, at the very beginning of 16. It's the word so in the ESV and the word therefore in the NIV. And what Paul means by this is that there are some things that lead us to not lose heart. So we do not lose heart or therefore we do not lose heart. And so that should get our attention of, okay, what did he say before that? Or what is he going to say after that that tells us we should not lose heart? One last observation before we get into it of verse 16. Paul acknowledges that our bodies are wasting away, that, that our, we're all basically going to die. And at the same time, he acknowledges that we do not lose heart, but we're being renewed day by day. It's interesting. So Paul's aware that he is a dying man. 
and newsflash, all of us share in that same reality. We are all going to die. It's going to happen. It's the one thing that none of us can escape. And you're closer to that death now than you were when you woke up this morning. And in the same breath that Paul is making us aware of that, and that he's aware of that, as he says, we're wasting away, our bodies are decaying, he says, we do not lose heart and we're being renewed day by day. And it's very profound that he says those things because it stresses a deeper question of Paul. How do I accept the fact that I am wasting away, that my earthly body is decaying, that I will lose my life and I, I will endure suffering and at the same time not lose heart but be renewed day by day with inner strength to go on in this life with joy? How do I do that? Well, first one, verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The first way that we do not lose heart, the first way that we have hope is that we know that it's God's power working and not our own. And God's power is exalted and God's power is made known in our weaknesses. We, so we operate in his power and not ours. The same power that created the universe is working in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working inside of us. And so we look to the glory of God and the power of God. The second way we do not lose heart is that in suffering, God sustains us with his grace and his mercy. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. See, verses 8 and 9 are not things that Paul's making up. When he says afflicted, when he says uh, perplexed, when he says persecuted, when he says struck down, he's saying those things because he's been through them. And so it carries some weight with it when he talks about them. So like, if I told you, if you go to Six Flags and you ride, I think it's the Aquaman now, it wasn't that, I think it was something else. But it's that big, not the cheesy log ride, but the big one where you really get wet, right? So if you ride that, and you ride it maybe, let's say, five times because it's a hot day in Texas, right? You want to get soaked. If you ride that and then you stand on the bridge each time after and you get soaked some more, if you do that, if I told you if you do that, you're going to experience some pain called chafing. <laughs> I would know from experience multiple times, and it, it, it hurts a lot. And so Paul is going to show us he... He's got some weight to what he's saying. Verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. These are some ways that he endured suffering and the temptation to lose heart. 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times 
I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's where they pick up stones and throw them at you. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul's been through some stuff. He has. He's not the only person in the Bible that's faced suffering. It's full of it. Joseph, Job, Moses, he's one of my favorite, right? Travels around looking for the promised land for 40 years with ungrateful, whining, complaining people who were delivered from slavery. Bread's coming down from heaven, water's coming out of the rocks, and they're still, I wish I was back as a slave. Like, who wants to go through that? And then not only that, but he gets to the promised land. It's there. It's in front of his eyes. And then he's like, God's like, bud, actually, Joshua's going to take him the rest of the way. John the Baptist, faithful to God. Jesus calls him the greatest man born of a woman. He lives uh, to proclaim the kingdom of God. He survives off of bugs and honey because he's being faithful to God. He goes before Jesus to proclaim the kingdom and that Jesus is coming. He baptizes Jesus finds himself in prison, sends word to Jesus, hey, Jesus, are you, are you the one? Because I'm in prison right now. Are you the Messiah? Are you really him? Jesus sends back word. He quotes Isaiah to him and basically says, I'm paraphrasing, yes, I am the one, but you're gonna die in prison. Stephen, who's stoned to death after proclaiming the kingdom and calling people repentance in the book of Acts, All of the apostles and disciples suffered and died for the sake of Christ. Except John, you know, he was just boiled alive and then exiled. Christ himself, who endured more suffering than anyone. He suffered on behalf of the sins of the world. So suffering is not new. It shouldn't surprise us. And so Paul resolves, however, that we would not lose heart, though, which is very profound in light of everything that Paul went through, that he would say that. And even today, affliction, being perplexed, being persecuted, struck down is not beyond us in this room. We've all been through one of these at some point or another. Maybe we've been afflicted with an illness Maybe economic hardship. Maybe we got accused for something we didn't do. We've all been perplexed. Somebody close to us gets cancer. Husband, wife passes away. Little kid dies out of nowhere. You know, there's a guy who is a sports writer for the Texas Rangers named Richard Durrett who died last month at the age of 38 from a brain aneurysm left two kids, a wife, and one on the way. 
There's family members that we've been preaching the gospel to for years, and they still don't believe. Like, we've been perplexed. It's nice to hear that Paul was perplexed at times, right? There's persecution. It's not maybe the same as overseas, but we face persecution in some ways here. And it hurts, and it's real. Struck down, Paul's most likely talking about the fact that he was literally struck down. But we've been slandered before, haven't we? People have just left out of nowhere. And the crazy thing is that all these things can happen in a weekend. And the even crazier thing is that there's not one of you in here, including myself, that can't get a phone call right now and have our life upside down, changed. And these are the harsh realities. Paul's going to say they all have divine purpose, though. None of them are accidental. Every bit of weakness and suffering is an opportunity for God to display his grace in your life. God's grace is on full demonstration in our weaknesses. And he's actually working See, look, the accent of Paul's language in verse 8 and 9 here is not on the harsh realities, but it's on the grace of God. Look, afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. He wants us to be aware of the harsh realities that come from this world, but he wants us to understand more that it's the grace of God that sustains us in the midst of them. It's about the sustaining power of God's grace because without it, we would be crushed. We would be driven to despair. We would be destroyed. We would be forsaken. That's why I strongly dislike the saying, God's not going to give you more than you can handle, I think it's a flat-out lie. Because oftentimes, it's way more than we can handle, but not more than he can handle. And it's the grace of God that then drives me into full reliance on him. Because I know because of him, I'm not forsaken. I'm not crushed. There's nothing that can destroy me because of who Jesus is in my life. That's grace that was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus. Spurgeon says this, the Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. The third way that we do not lose heart is that we know that through our suffering, life is flowing from God to others. It says in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul says here, we suffer, we're being given over to death for Jesus' sake to show the life of Jesus. He says then that death is at work in us, but life in you. He's saying, death is at work in me, but life in you, Corinthians. 
And so what he's saying is that as we sacrifice things for the sake of the gospel, as we die for the sake of the gospel, death is at work. But look at the result. Life in you. Life in the form of God's glory being proclaimed throughout the church. Life in the form of others coming to know the comfort of God. Life in the form of you knowing Jesus more deeply. There's life happening. And if we're going to be a church of life, then we will have dying people. We will have people that sacrifice for the sake of God's glory. We will have people that suffer for the sake of the church. You know, I, I do hear a lot at Saul Rock. I love Saul Rock because there's life there and I can feel the presence of God. And I agree with that. The reason is, is because we have people that sacrifice for the sake of the church and the sake of God's glory. We have people that die to themselves and put their needs below the needs of others. We have people here that love God and want to see his glory proclaimed. There's nothing better than that. It's what a church is. So if we want to be a church of life, we have to be a dying church. Last one, and I'll let y'all go. The fourth way that we do not lose heart, this is the big one. The fourth way that we do not lose heart is through the hope of eternity. That we will be raised with Jesus. Look at verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We do not lose heart because in the end, everything's going to be okay. In the end, not even death can make the story bad because we're going to be raised with Jesus. And we're going to have, be able to be in the presence of God. And he secures this for us in verse 17 and 18. As he says, look at this, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul does not lose heart because he has, and he's firmly grounded in, a, an eternal perspective. And without an eternal perspective, with the absence of that, you will lose heart quickly. But Paul doesn't have, he, he has it actually, I'm sorry. He has an eternal perspective. Paul's saying that these light momentary afflictions are preparing the weight of glory to come from when I'm in heaven. And so I look not to the things that are here, but I look to the things that are going to be there. I don't look to the present, I look to the eternal. And so when I read, like, this is just interesting to me. When I read, remember 2 Corinthians 11? When I read right here, Paul calls those things light. It's crazy. I feel like if I ever wanted to hang out with Paul, I'd have to sign a no whining clause. Right? I feel like, you know, just, well, you know, I, I've done that, yeah. Been through that. Yeah, that sounds really bad, but let me tell you about this one time that we did. I, I, like, if I started crying, I started whining, he'd just kind of come over and, really? Really, you're going to whine? And I say that because when Paul says struck down, you see the scars on his body. When Paul says persecuted, he means people were actually after to kill him. 
When Paul says perplexed, he means when he was being transferred to Rome as a prisoner on a ship, he gets uh, this horrible storm. They're without food. They want to kill all the prisoners. He gets out of that, and then they get shipwrecked, and, of course, they swim to land. He gets there, and then he gets bitten by a snake. That's perplexion. He calls those things light. Because in view of the glory that's to come, it is light. It doesn't even compare. It's like me, 5'11", a little over 300 pounds, maybe a two-inch vertical on a good day. LeBron James, 6'8", 240, 40, 50-inch vertical. Like, one-on-one, I'm going to beat him every time, aren't I? Right? There's no comparison. No, I'm going to get killed. But anyways, he says those things are light when compared to the weight of the glory of heaven. Which is interesting. He says, he starts talking about weight here because life feels heavy, doesn't it? It feels hard. Like just the fact that we can't continuously go and go and go and we get tired and our bodies wear out. Nobody can continuously run forever. Even Forrest Gump took a break at one point, right? So it's interesting to me that he would describe suffering with weight and call it light when put next to the glory of heaven because he's also saying that these light momentary afflictions are not meaningless, but they're actually doing something. The point is that every moment of pain, every trouble that you go through, Every bit of suffering is not meaningless. It's not pointless, but it's actually doing something for us. Every bit of it from when you lose your husband or you lose your wife or you get diagnosed with cancer or you lose your job or your child dies all the way to maybe if you were made fun of because of the way that you look or the, maybe something that you believe in. Every bit of it is doing something. I know that you can't see it in that moment at times. I know it still hurts. But what he's saying here is absolutely profound because he's saying that when you go through that, it's working for you. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond comparison. When you go through it, it's producing in us the joy of the glory to come in heaven with Christ Jesus. It's only through Christ that we're able to experience this because he's the way to the glory in heaven. The reason Paul's able to withstand suffering as well as he does is because he's able to, and he's able to endure infliction is because he is focused on the eternal and not the present. He's focused on the glory of being with God forever. And when you put your mind on that, suffering does, as Paul calls it, become light. When we can do the same thing, like the same goes for us, when we fix our eyes on the glory of heaven, when we put our minds on that, the glory of everlasting, eternal life with God, even though suffering still hurts, even though at times you go through something that feels like a death sentence, we do not lose heart because we have eternity, because we have life with God beyond this. It's not about right now. It's about the one to come. I love this quote as I finish up. 
It's from A.W. Pink. It says, afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. They're light when compared with the suffering of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is awaiting us. And so we do this by focusing on the eternal. And I constantly have to read, especially through hard times, I have to reread scripture, like Revelation 21.3. I'll just take that one out for you. Revelation 21.3, it says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. I read that. I focus on that. It's hard to lose heart. We do not lose heart. We are comforted. We have hope in the midst of everything that's bad that's going on in our lives. When we rely on the power of God in our lives, the grace and mercy that sustains us, when we know that as we're doing that, we're dying to ourselves and we're giving life to others, and when we have an eternal perspective and we concentrate on the eternal things rather than the present life. And in this, it says we're being renewed day by day, even though the outer part's going away. So I'm gonna have the prayer partners come back up and the band come back up. We're, uh, we're gonna sing a song. It's a new one here. And it's, it's basically the words are everything that I just talked about. And it's a challenging song to sing, but hopefully for some of us, it's gonna, some of us in here, it's going to be an amazing song for us to sing today. You know, before we go into all this, there's something I said at the beginning that I want to make sure we all understand. Uh, I, I talked about how you'll never know this, you'll never experience these things that I talked about, these truths that I talked about, unless you know who Jesus is. These aren't for you. They're not going to happen. And so I'm, I'm going to pray in a little bit, and I'm going to pray for those of you who do not know Jesus, that you would, in your seat maybe today, just pray with him and talk with him and say, God, I, w- I want to know your comfort. All you have to do, all, all he says that you have to do is place your faith in him, that he died and that he rose for you. If you're a believer today, maybe you're going through suffering. Maybe you, you, you're not. And I'll just say this, just a, just a disclaimer. Everybody goes through suffering. And so if you haven't yet, you're going to get it. And so I pray that, I'm about to pray that, that these things that we just read would be something that you could grab a hold of that would hold you up during those times. So let's pray real quick, and, and we'll get to singing again.